greatly from a return on investment in the electric vehicle maker Rivian, which went public in November. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. I hope you had a great break for the Lunar New Year holidays. Welcome back to Money Talk on Radio 3 on Friday the 4th of February. This is Peter Lewis with the latest business headlines. The Bank of England has raised interest rates for the second time in three months to try and tame inflation, which is at its highest level in more than 30 years. The UK central bank hiked rates by 25 basis points to half a percent and the BOE warned that price rises could speed up. Four members on the BOE's nine-strong rate-setting monetary policy committee voted for an even bigger increase of 50 basis points. And the move came after the country's finance minister, Rishi Sunak, unveiled a support package to help households cope with a 54% jump in energy bills, taking them to their highest level in more than a decade. The European Central Bank left interest rates on hold at a record low of minus half a percent at its governing council meeting yesterday. But markets were jolted by ECB President Christine Lagarde, departing from her previous insistence that rates wouldn't rise in 2022. In a hawkish switch, she said there was unanimous concern about the impact of soaring prices and of, the, and of the situation having changed with regards to interest rates. Data released earlier this week showed annual consumer prices in the Eurozone rose by a record 5.1% in January. And the OECD reported yesterday that inflation in the world's richest economies has hit a 30-year high. The annual pace of consumer price growth in the OECD group of developed nations reached 6.6% in December, up from 1.2% in the same month the previous year, and that's the highest rate since July 1991. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris at UCAP Hong Kong Asset Management and Mark Michelson from IMA Asia. With a view from India is Toby Lawson, CEO of Societe Generale India. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Rising bond yields and disappointing earnings from the tech sector have sent US stocks sharply lower on Wall Street. Today was the worst day for a balanced bond stock portfolio since February 2021. The S&P 500 index had its worst day in nearly a year, tumbling 2.4% to 4,477. The Dow slid 518 points to 35,111. The Nasdaq Composite Index plunged over 3.7% in its worst one-day fall since September 2020 to 13,879. Shares of Facebook plunged over 26%, losing almost 250 billion US dollars in market cap. That's the largest single-day market cap loss for a US company ever after Facebook reported its global daily active users declined from the previous quarter for the first time in its 18-year history to 1.929 billion from 1.930 billion. The social media company blamed Apple's privacy changes and increased competition for users from rivals like TikTok. The changes have made it harder for brands to target and measure their ads on Facebook and Instagram. 
PayPal fell over 6%, taking its declines to almost 30% since Tuesday. Alphabet fell over 3% yesterday, despite it posting record quarterly sales that topped expectations on Tuesday. Snap plunged 24% in the regular session, but then its shares rocketed over 55% higher in after-hours trading after the company reported its first-ever quarterly profit. And shares of Amazon fell 8% in regular trading, but then jumped 14% higher after the closing bell, as the firm reported a 9% sales increase and a doubling in profits and a gain of almost 12 billion US dollars from its investment in electric vehicle company Rivian. The Pan-European Stock 600 index dropped 1.7%. The UK's FTSE 100 fell 0.7%. US oil prices have topped $90 a barrel for the first time since 2014. The jump in prices came a day after the OPEC group of producers agreed to raise output by another 400,000 barrels a day in March. But analysts are sceptical about the cartel's ability to follow through on continued supply increases. Gold is trading at $1,805 an ounce. And the signals from the Bank of England and ECB that they are stepping up the fight against inflation led to a sharp sell-off in global government bond markets on Thursday. The UK's 10-year yield rose by 12 basis points to 1.3%. Uh, sorry, 1.37%. That's the highest level in more than three years after the BOE said it will begin to reduce the stock of gilts it holds. The 10-year German Bund yield climbed 11 basis points to a nearly three-year high of 0.15%. Elsewhere in Europe, Italy's 10-year bond yield saw 23 basis points to 1.64%. That's the highest since May 2020. And the selling spread to the US, where the 10-year Treasury yield added 7 basis points to 1.84%, close to a recent two-year high. The US dollar index dropped 0.6%. The euro jumped 1.2% to a more than two-week high of $1.14.3 against the dollar. The Japanese yen jumped half a percent to 115 against the dollar. Sterling was up 0.2% against the dollar at $1.36 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 60 cents. In offshore markets, the Chinese yuan is at 6.35 and a quarter versus the dollar. And Bitcoin this morning is trading at $37,200. Markets on the mainland and in Taiwan are still closed today for the Lunar New Year holidays. Hong Kong markets reopened this morning after a three-day break and futures markets pointing to a gain of 350 points for the Hang Seng at the open. In Australia, the SX200 is already trading and it's up 0.1%. Shares in Japan have also just opened. The Nikkei 225 there up 0.2%. It's 8.10. Let's welcome our guests. Over in our Queensway studio, we have our regular Friday commentator, Andrew Ferris, Chief Strategist at UCAP Hong Kong Asset Management. Happy Year of the Tiger, Andrew. Same to you, Peter. Same to you and same to all our audience. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And also with us here in uh, Broadcasting House, Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Congratulations, uh, Peter and Andrew, although I'm not sure if that's exactly the right greeting after your intro, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's a bit, a bit gloomy, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, let me, let me start with you and ask you about inflation. 
As you heard there from uh, the introduction, we're seeing sharp rises now in inflation all over the world. Correction. Okay, but go, go on. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you are. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> uh, are you concerned? Uh, y- yes, to the extent that the measured inflation, both in the United States and, uh, and, uh, and EU, has been going up. But of the three main central banks, uh, yes, of course, it's, they're going to raise rates. I don't think there is any doubt about it. Lagarde said that um, they will consider raising interest rates. Possibly they will. But first, they will have to stop buying bonds. Now, uh, unbeknown uh, to the huge public, not because I'm cleverer, but because these are minute details, the European Central Bank doesn't have an X amount per month like the Fed did or at one stage the Bank of England did. It has an X amount, full stop, which will be spread over an X number of years. X number of years was uh, something like towards the end of 23. So Lagarde says that uh, we may very well divide that by 24 and we'll be spending it on a monthly basis. We may accelerate, decelerate, but we will first stop pumping money and then we'll increase interest rates. So it was a little bit of a qualified. And my favorite place as far as interest rates going, it's Japan. Japan. I knew Absolute Japan. complete silence. So please, Nothing. you know, one out of three major central banks are not increasing interest mm-hmm. rates. Well, one and point two, okay, if we, get, if we get the European Union. So yes, of course, you know, I don't like inflation rates at six and seven percent, but it's just not true that everybody's pressing the panic button. But it is a U-turn isn't it, by Christine Lagarde. She's sort of starting to admit defeat now and that inflation is way above their target. Well, you know, uh, John Maynard Keynes was, was, he was pressed to say, what happens when the data contradict you? He says, my dear man, I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, put this in sort of layman's terms for us, in terms of what people in the street are noticing, what companies are saying about this and the impact it's having on them and their businesses. Well, sorry, I have no idea what the people in the streets are saying. And as for businesses are concerned, they're, of course, always concerned about their costs. And the costs reflect uh, both uh, imported costs, okay, if we are talking about a global economy, and, of course, labor costs. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I was going, I'm being a little bit sarcastic. The good news is, is that real wages are not increasing. So, in other words, the real cost of businesses are not going up. Uh, you know, Peter, uh, it, it's, it sounds horrible, but it always, always depends. Okay, If you are a company making microchips, you are smiling from ear to ear. If you are an owner of a container, you are hopping up and down with delight. So there is a lot of areas where higher prices is a good news, not bad news. Mark, you're, you're talking to companies all the time. What are they saying on the ground? Are they, are they feeling this? Are they experiencing it? Absolutely. Of course, what Andrew just said is true. There are a lot of companies that are benefiting from from higher prices and uh, and you know don't mind it so much. And at the same time, you talked about Japan. Just a brief remark: they've had a two percent inflation target for as long as I can remember. It's been very elusive. So mm. so maybe they're trying to reach it. Although there are certain implications for that as well. But anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in salaries, there's such there's such a there's a talent war. People are leaving the market. People are jumping companies very quickly. One of the extremes I heard from one of our executives was was in India, where apparently uh, prospective employees are being offered BMWs and that really? sort of thing to to move on. And he and he said, well, we offered we offered our our prospects a twenty percent 
increase, and they just laughed at us. So what, what do companies do then to try and retain employees or attract them in what's really a new world now, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think what they try to do is in terms of responsibilities, in terms of location, in terms of, of the sort of the soft stuff, in terms of work hours and working from home, working from, from uh, elsewhere, just trying to make the adjustments because it's not just about wages. Now, wages help, obviously, mm. and salaries help, but it's also about the – the other aspects of, of work that that employees and many of them feel that they're in a much better position now to negotiate. But there is a real impact, isn't there, for consumers and for households in the UK. The Bank of England said that now wage increases are lagging so far behind inflation uh, that the people are actually seeing their biggest fall, real fall, if you like, yeah. in take-home pay since records began in 1990. It's having an impact, isn't it? Yeah, which puts the pressure even higher on, on companies that are trying to, trying, to, trying to keep talent and trying to bring in new talent. Mm. Andrew, are we at risk of returning to 70s, 1970s uh, style inflation, do you think? Well, uh, and again, this is a, a, a matter of numbers, okay? When American interest rates went up to 18%, inflation was exceeding 20% at the time. So mm. we're still in the, not even in the teens, but it's not a matter of waiting till you are in the teens and then and then press the panic button. But uh, the pressures are very different. Actually, but, uh, I am incredibly suspicious about uh, supply chain constraints. Not that they are not, but they are so hugely anecdotological that uh, I'm spending, I'm going to spend the best part of the weekend for my, for my next report quantifying, or quantifying those as far as Asia is concerned because I'm genuinely suspicious. I want to know individual supply constraints, how much this led to price increases. Unfortunately, containers is dead easy. I know that because I sent a container of, uh, of certain things from our households to, to Greece and to Montevideo, and I thought there was a printing mistake of the number of zeros added <laughs> to, the, to, 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 the, uh, to the fares. But, uh, I, you know, I really, really want to understand that very, very clearly before I go ahead and say, well, it's all due to those naughty, naughty uh, supply constraints. Is, I think it is a, a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it, it is. But in terms of the containers, one of, one of our, several of our members mentioned that they've gone from, say, 2000 U.S. dollars to 10000 U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. They said, we're going to pay them. And we're going to pass on the costs, and we can mm. we can do that to some extent because we have to. We need to we need to get the the products and the supplies elsewhere. But are, are companies changing now? There the the way they source uh, components and, and and raw materials in, in order to try and deal with this. They're trying to some some did it ahead of time, even before this happened. They they rejigged their supply chains and made them much shorter as much as they could. For example, mm. within China or or elsewhere, so they're sitting not not in such bad shape now. But many of them had to scramble, especially for chips and other things, which you've heard so much about. And uh, the the zero COVID policy followed by China yes. brings yeah. this is much nearer because Absolutely. it looks as if that China is going to stay closed for better or worse. That's that's their policy. Yeah. Okay, for a much longer period, and presumably this is going to put pressure on supply chains. And that's another thing that. Uh, I'm acutely interested because unlike forecasting what's going to happen to interest rates, forecasting what's likely to happen to China is, is a little bit easier because we have 
have their consistency in their policy. In other words, that's not going to change anytime soon. So, you know, I, can, I would be on a firm base to say what I see in China right now, I'm going to be seeing it in the end of the year. And how will this affect my costs? Mm. Are you going to study that as well over the weekend? Uh, <laughs> no, I want to really cheer myself up, actually. <laughs> well, what about the markets? Christy Lagarde has delivered a bit of a reality check for bond markets, hasn't she? Because people are starting to now price in that actually what we're going to see is maybe faster taperings of asset purchases, much faster uh, rises in interest rates as well than, uh, than people were previously forecast. So what, what's this going to do for the markets? Well, for, for sure, it's going to strengthen the euro, and uh, it already actually started doing that. And uh, that puts another nail on the coffin that whatever happens, the US dollar is going to, is going to, is going to strengthen. And uh, the second point is the way that the interest rates are going to be spread or the impact of those interest rates are going to be spread amongst the European members. Okay, and in particular, the ones that will continue to be hammered in their very important tourist sector, and that is France, Italy, Spain, Greece, and to some extent UK. But UK is not a member of the European Union anymore, so we will keep that, we'll keep that aside. So in other words, increases in interest rates are very likely to have very differentiated uh, impact on, uh, on, on the EU. You know, the, the problem with monetary policies is you have to have a diffusion channel because simply increasing interest rates is not going to mean that the price of milk and shoes uh, are going to fall within one week. I mean, one has to argue it through, and by the time you are halfway arguing it through, you lift your head in the air and you give up, mm -hmm. because it's not at all obvious how higher interest rates is going to make a bottle of milk cost less, mm -hmm. or actually or not increase more. Okay. Okay. Um, Mark, let me ask you about the Beijing Olympics. They start today. The opening ceremony is, uh, is later on. They go through till February the 20th. A couple of notable things about it. First of all, companies are keeping a very low profile, aren't they, in this year's uh, Olympics? Hardly anyone's ad advertising. Normally you have a blitz of advertising uh, from the usual corporate sponsors. What, what's going on? Well, they're caught in the middle, of course, especially, well, U.S. and to some extent, I guess, some European companies in the sense that they... If, if they say too much, they're going to they're going to anger somebody. Maybe maybe both sides, mm. and you know most of them are heavily dependent on the China market uh, in in terms of their their overall their overall uh, revenue. So uh, you know it, it's it's a tough situation, and it was sort of hard to back out. Now that doesn't defend defend what they what they decided, but uh, they're in a very difficult position. Probably more difficult than. Uh, than anyone in, in recent memory. It's happened before, but maybe not mm. to this extent. Uh, Peter, don't mind sticking my neck out. I've written extensively that yeah. I am dead against Olympic Games. Whoever uh, organizes them, whoever, I must emphasize this. A, because they are highly politicized. Yeah. Secondly, they are incredibly expensive. Mm. Okay, And third, supposedly, remember I'm of Greek origin, they fulfill the ideal of ancient Greece, which is absolute and total nonsense. Okay, Olympic Games in ancient Greece was riven by, by scandals, by bribery, by politicization of the games. So in other words, plus uh, sens la même chose, as the French say. In other words, with this change, nothing changes. And the same thing goes on so you know it is it is uh, it is it is an upsetting event but i have to stress that okay i have to say i wrote 
against the Olympic Games in Japan. Okay, so it's not a matter of picking a country and saying, well, you know, if this country organizes, that's bad news. You know, I, I genuinely don't like Olympic Games. And the fact that companies are now uh, are playing difficult, it simply shows the commercialization and the politicization of the game. So there's nothing new, and it's nothing specific about China. I hasten to add, repeat, nothing specific about China. No. It's, it happened to every single country that, uh, that uh, organized the Olympic Games. And I will remind us, in the Japanese Olympic Games, which was not all that time ago, okay, it was back in July, Russia actually could not participate because it has been excluded because of the state doping scandal. Oh, for God's sakes. Okay, I mean, it is, uh, it is, it is upsetting. Yeah, some things just don't change. And it, it's mm. always been highly politicized. Mm. This year, probably a little bit more mm. because uh, we've, got, we've got potential conflicts happening in the rest of the world. And, mm. and of course, President, uh, President Putin's going to be there uh, meeting President Xi. And unfortunately, I, it was just brought in. I just saw an article, one, I think it was in Nikkei, that mentioned that, um, that at the time of the Beijing Olympics, that was the time of the Russia invaded Georgia and then after Sochi, it was uh, Crimea, around the time of Crimea. So that's oh maybe goodness. not a good leading indicator. I hope it's not true, <laughs> okay. true this time. But it just it just underlines what Andrew said. Yeah. It's always been politicized, but this this one seems a, l a little bit more worrying. Okay, well, thank you both very much. Have a good weekend studying supply chains or whatever it is you're going to do. You heard there, Mark Michelson, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Andrew Ferris, who's chief strategist at UCAP Hong Kong Asset Management. 567 AM, Radio 3. And it's 8.24 and a half. On the phone uh, from India is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. Morning, Toby. Yeah, Peter. Thank you very much. Um, big week, hasn't it been for, for India? A lot going on. First of all, you've had the budget uh, this week. Um, tell us about uh, the massive infrastructure spending plan that was announced in that. Yeah, big increase in uh, capital expenditure. This is a real Keynesian budget for those who uh, like economic theory. Um, you know, government leading the way to drive growth, to create aggregate demand and to try to crowd in private investment. And the driver is going to be capital expenditure, particularly in infrastructure, roads, rail, port. Uh, and combining that, of course, with a strategy that is more long-term based around digital and, uh, and uh, green. A very, very um, pro-growth budget and, and, and uh, very much not on the, the expected popular side, noting, of course, that we have some elections coming up uh, in India at the state level in the, in the coming month. And the, the increase, it's about, I think, a 35% increase on the previous year's budget. How is all of this going to be funded? So it's about three percent of GDP. So it's, it's quite uh, it's quite significant, and the, the government borrowings are going up uh, uh, by an additional trillion, about fourteen trillion INR of, of borrowings that'll come. Uh, part of it'll uh, part of the funding will come from divestment of assets, and that's a little bit more conservative in the estimates. But ultimately, yeah, they're going to have to borrow in the market, and one of the concerns will be um, you know inflation and the level of interest rates uh, and how much that will impact in terms of the total borrowing requirement. So. Uh, at this stage, obviously, they'll be continuing to look for more foreign direct investment as well. So at this stage, as you know, the debt markets, um, uh, government debt's funded predominantly domestically. But I think given the size of the, the requirement, uh, they're going to be needing more and more foreign investment.
Mm. The, the, obviously, the big big infrastructure push in the budget. One of the concerns about India's economy has been really the uneven recovery from the pandemic across uh, the country. And also the unemployment rate, which has really um, surged, hasn't it, since the start of the pandemic. And a lot of young people in particular um, uh, are unemployed and a lot of people have fallen back into, uh, into poverty. Did the budget address those issues? Probably, probably not as directly as, as many critics would have expected. Uh, there's some 5 million uh, people come into the workforce every year in India, so it's a, it's a significant issue, employment. Um, and so I guess if you look at CapEx's uh, uh, aspiration and ambition of the government, they, they could, you know, they suggest that they could create 6 million jobs over five years, but in of itself won't be sufficient. So you're right about the employment being a, a challenge. It's a challenge continually in India. Uh, it's partly addressed through um, the CapEx and, you know, the, the infrastructure program and the spending program, but less a direct incentive into the pockets of uh, those who are still struggling uh, coming out of the pandemic. Now, also, there was news about um, cryptocurrencies, wasn't there? The finance minister announced uh, that the Reserve Bank of India plans to launch a digital rupee. Um, and she also said there was going to be um, an income tax on the transfer of virtual assets, which is going to be at 30%. Um, now, is, is this a change? Because before, um, the government was talking about, in fact, at one stage, it did completely banning uh, cryptocurrency tr uh, trading. But um, governments don't normally tax things that are illegal. So, so is this now a sign that they are going to accept uh, cryptocurrencies and it's going to become more mainstream? Yeah, I think you, I, I think you could go from sort of an, uh, an opposition to crypto to a, a, a regulation and the tax uh, at 30% uh, on income from um, transfer of crypto assets is quite steep. Mm. But I think it, it also legitimises the sector. So in part, it's a positive thing because uh, effectively it's a recognition by the government, as you quite rightly point, if they're going to tax it, they, they have to legitimise it. So in that sense, the regulatory environment is now going to shift towards normalising crypto, a reserve bank to issue a central bank digital token, uh, using uh, blockchain um, or other technologies. Um, it really is a push on the government to indicate that they are moving uh, to aggressively push into the digital economy. And I think this is very important long term for India. Um, so, yeah, you, you, it's not so much a complete turnaround, but it's probably an adaptation to the reality that they need to, to look at regulating the space as opposed to opposing it. So the, the digital rupee, I mean, the, the Reserve Bank of India is following a number of other central banks like the, the People's Bank of China, the Bank of England, who are, are trialling sort of digital currencies. What, what is it going to do for the overall economy? Well, if you think about digital economy, if you, if you, if you can create it through uh, payments, through financial services, uh, through you know, uh, distribution, it, it, it certainly creates an enormous amount of efficiency. And I guess when you look at multiplier effects in terms of GDP, it's hard to really assess specifically. Mm -hmm. But given the absolute need to reach out uh, in technology terms to the broader diaspora of India, which is still very informal in many ways, it, uh, it, it sort of like jumps the shark in terms of uh, how an economy can operate, a modern economy. And India is looking to use digital as a way of really capturing the whole space across the country as opposed to, you know, uh, continuing to focus uh, potentially within the metros. And so this is really about trying to, you know, ca capture the whole of the Indian economy and set it up for the next 25 years. So um, what GDP impact will be short term is probably a little too early to say.
And how did the Indian markets react to the budget overall? Well, the bond market uh, didn't like it initially because there was an expectation that there would be a change in this tax treatment of capital gains on bonds. Um, and this would have uh, you know, affirmed the inclusion of Indian bonds into the global bond indices. That didn't happen. So you, uh, bonds uh, rallying, uh, yields went up about 20 basis points, quite aggressive. Equity markets liked it. Uh, they see it uh, you know, uh, very strongly. So, in fact, that was probably... But that's also in line with some of the recovery in the broader indices around the world. But generally speaking, it was held well. I think that the public discourse has been good. Um, it's a budget for investment. It's a budget for the market, if you will. Um, so, yeah, overall, it was taken positively. Toby, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this shortened uh, week. In Australia, the SX200 is up 0.2%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 also up 0.2%. Uh, the Cosby has jumped about 1.4% in South Korea. Futures markets indicating a gain of about 350 points for the Hang Seng at the open. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil trading at $91.02 a barrel. Gold is at $1,806 an ounce. That's it for me. Have a great uh, weekend. I'll be back Monday morning at 8 o'clock. Back chats coming up after the news with Andrew Work and Jim Gould this morning. The weather forecast for today many cloudy cold in the morning it's going to be fine in the afternoon maximum temperature of around 17 degrees and remain cold uh, tomorrow morning but temperatures will rise slightly next week that cold weather warning is still in force it's 13 degrees right now 72 percent relative humidity 8.32, here's Todd Harding with the half-hour news. The Deputy Commissioner for Labour, Jeff Leung, has become the highest-ranking official to contract COVID-19 since the pandemic began two years ago. Aaron Tam reports. The Labour Department says the workplace of Jeff Leung, who's the Deputy Commissioner for Occupational Safety and Health, will be thoroughly disinfected. In a statement, it said that Mr. Leung last worked at his office, located on the 16th floor of the Harbour Building in Central, on Monday, ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday. The department stressed he didn't have any meetings that day and that he did not come into contact with members of the public when he was at work. It said it'll cooperate with the Centre for Health Protection in taking appropriate follow-up actions and will continue to strictly implement anti-COVID measures. Staff who are feeling unwell should also immediately seek medical advice and inform the department, it said. A leading epidemiologist, Benjamin Cowling, says the government should divert resources away from inoculating children against COVID towards boosting the vaccination rate in elderly people. Just over 30% of people aged 80 and over are vaccinated. Professor Cowling, the University of Hong Kong's Chair of Epidemiology, told RTHK there had been an exponential increase in COVID-19 cases in the past couple of weeks. If it's not feasible to get back down to zero, I think we've, we've got to think carefully about what the strategy is. Because if we spend a lot of energy, a lot of resources, a lot of effort on containment, when it's, it's really difficult to contain, we're, we're missing the chance to do better mitigation instead. And I still think the absolute number one priority right now is to get more older people vaccinated. Um, and, and in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a, an increase in, in vaccination rates, but it's a small increase. 
The government has yet to announce the lifting of lockdowns imposed overnight on four residential blocks in Taipo and Tunmun. Authorities say sewage samples from Fuchong, Kwai Chong and Wing Chong courts of Fortune Plaza in Taipo tested positive for COVID-19 and there may be asymptomatic patients in those buildings. They also said several COVID infections were found in Hing Ping House of Tai Hing Estate. US President Joe Biden has called on lawmakers to collaborate to end gun violence during a visit to New York, where recent shootings of police have highlighted a growing fear of violent disorder in American cities. Mr Biden said enough was enough. Every day in this country, uh, 316 people are shot, 106 are killed, and six NYP 